You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great level art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. I'm glad you could join us for this episode of the podcast. Uh, we are going to talk about what I consider a true American, uh, uh, a true business person, and incredible life that um, I, I don't think is well understood uh, by most people. Um, Matthew Bernstein is joining us to talk about his recent book, George Hurst, Silver King of the Gilded Age. Matthew's book is going to make us think about what causes people to move and take risks as we expand, the, uh, and also thinking about the living and the development of the Western U.S., um, you know, for what we take for granted today uh, as Americans. Um, to give you a little background on Matthew, uh, Matthew is an adjunct professor of English at Los Angeles City College. Uh, he also teaches at Matrix for Success Academy and is a frequent magazine contributor. Um, he received his uh, Bachelor of Arts and his Master's Degree from Cal State Northridge in English Literature. Um, Matt, uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, first off, um, I need to tell you, and I, I mentioned this right before we started, that I just couldn't have loved this book more. I felt like you were speaking to my heartstrings, and I, I feel like I found my, my George Hurst inside of me. Um, so I'm really excited to visit with you, and um, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you, Cole. Good to hear. Um, so first off, why George Hurst? What about the story drew you in, and how did you originally get inspired to write this? Well, like most people who fall into George Hurst, I was actually looking at William Randolph Hearst. And, you know, as you get into the story, and of course, you know, Citizen Kane is based on his life, and he had like a very wild experience. I, I was confused, like, well, where did the money come from? And you can do like some bare bones research, and you're like, okay, well, George Hearst made a lot of money in the gold rush, and then various other mines. And if you start delving into that, it's really bare bones the information. I went and I found a biography on George Hearst, and it was written in the 1930s by friends of the family, friends of the Hearst family, and it really didn't provide an in-depth look at the human being or the details necessary to tell that story. So from there, uh, the Bancroft Library in Berkeley has the Hearst Papers. Uh, I went to all the old stomping grounds Hearst was at, Tombstone, Deadwood, Virginia City, Nevada City, uh, up in San Francisco, and eventually I was able to uh, come up with the real story of who he was. So let's begin. Uh, George grows up uh, on a Missouri farm in Franklin County. Uh, teach our listeners about his family and his early life. Okay. So George is born September 3rd, 1820 in Franklin County, Missouri, and that's about 60 miles or so uh, south of St. Louis. And he's raised on a farm, and there are three children. He's the eldest. Uh, there's George, there's Martha, and there's Jacob. 
and his father is a decent farmer, and he's civil-minded. He likes to go to the parades. His mother is a very practical woman, and George always refers back to that. He says that, I think I took after my mother much more than my father, and I credit her with my success. But he spends his first uh, 30 years on the farm, and he and his dad will bring some food into the market, and they will go visit some French miners, and he sees that these miners have far much more money and, you know, fancy furniture than his father does, and he thinks farming is just no sort of way to make a living. And he can see himself living here fairly comfortable for the time, because they did have a, a large farm. It was actually three farms. But he wanted to do better. And so when rumors of the gold rush uh, happened, yeah, this would be 1849, he originally looks at it and thinks, nah, this will blow, blow over. Nothing's happening here. The following year, the rumors become so persistent that he's like, okay. And in 1850, he gathers there's some cousins and a friend, and they head out on an overland trip to California. Now, let me let me let me uh, come back because you point out some really interesting points in this kind of early period of his life. Um, you know, he goes to uh, at the time William Clark of like Lewis and Clark fame is the governor of the Missouri Territory. Um, he, it's not a state, um, and St. Louis is a big city in the area. But St. Louis isn't like a Philadelphia. It's not like an eastern seaboard city. Um, was there really the same opportunity for someone coming from St. Louis versus a well-to-do family like George was from in a place like Philadelphia? No, the uh, Washington University that's there in St. Louis now hadn't been built. Uh, George spent not much time in actual formal education. He would go into a log cabin here, he would stay with an aunt in St. Louis and get a little bit of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, but as a, as a guy who at least wasn't starving, as most of the West was, uh, he didn't have all that much opportunity for advancement. And he eventually did get interested in mining, and he spent a little bit of time in a mining school in uh, Franklin County. And he very quickly determined like, okay, this is the way to do it. Now, the family had a, uh, they had a small mine on their property and he was able to make just a little bit of money at it. Um, but it also inspired something in him where, you know, he felt like, okay, this is what I'm naturally here for. Mm -hmm. and, and now when you say mining, what what would mining be on that family farm? Was he just digging into the ground where they'd already found a little bit of ore? Well, this was the uh, this was in the the lead belt, as it was called. Uh, so they were uh, they were looking for that. Also in the Merrimack Caverns, which was by the old Hearst farmstead, they actually had uh, a lot of the ore, which could be turned into ammunition years later. And once the Civil War erupted, that actually became a major focal point in uh, Missouri Civil War. Um, the details of how he was actually conducting the mining are very scattered. Uh, he did, as an older man, write a 40-page memoir, which is, you know, 
very much in the George Hurst style. It's got all mm-hmm. sorts of uh, misspellings and odd sense of punctuation, but it does bring his voice out. We get a lot of information from his memoirs themselves, particularly in the early years in Missouri. Um, other information can be gleaned through uh, some of the uh, some of the old records, and there's still a gravestones there. Um, I visited Franklin County and I was able to find a lot of information at the uh, Merrimack Caverns themselves. Um, St. Louis as well, which he spent a lot of time in. So George was a taller man. Uh, You you note that he was well over six feet. Um, Obviously he was redheaded and therefore kind of came his own look as being this tall uh, man. Um, His father dies in 1844 and then his brother Jacob dies in 1845. Um, he ends up being the patriarch and thrust into that, as you as you mentioned. Um, he he had struck copper uh, around this time, and so you know, as you pointed out, you know, lead was in the Ozarks there. Um, he has had copper, um, and I think from his account in your book, uh, he, he noted that from eighteen to forty two to eighteen forty nine, he made about four to five thousand um, dollars over that time mining. Uh, what what kind of money was that for someone like a George Hurst in um, Franklin County, Missouri. Well, it was pretty good money. Um, at the time, like the rule of thumb is you could sort of like multiply it by about 20 and get around about what we consider today. So if you had like $5,000 uh, times 20, um, what would that be? Uh, 100000 $100,000? Okay, yep. so that was that was pretty good especially for the time uh people do ask me was he was he a billionaire no he, he never actually got to become a billionaire but he could spend he could spend a lot of money and he could get, get some uh some nice things with that at the same time they didn't have refrigeration and you know he was as you pointed out when he was born it was actually missouri territory the uh the missouri compromise was just about to happen Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a lot of uh, good places he could go. Now, I think uh, ultimately before he starts on the gold rush, like he purchases a gallon of brandy or so for 7 or $9, just to give you like uh, an example of like how far that money could go. Um, but he always wanted more. Uh, he, always, uh, he always felt that uh, he could do more. And especially in mining, he felt that Missourians were naturally the best. And he'd hear these rumors of uh, teachers and lawyers and doctors who were going out west and they were making fortunes. And he felt like, well, we, and particularly I, could do this a lot better. So you give the readers uh, of the book, um, I think, great context for understanding the gold rush uh, in California. Um, You tell a brief history of it. Uh, in 1848, uh, he, you know, he's coming, uh, he's coming, you know, to follow that. But before that is John Sutter, who you tell the story of, um, a Swiss man who finds gold on the American river. George is feeling that tug as a miner in Missouri. Um, what was that magnetic pull like for Americans in general? Because you know, again, I think your story does a great job of telling, you know, the, the regs to riches and everything in between that wanted to go get involved there. Well, this was the time of Horace Greeley's famous uh, line, you know, go west, young man. Uh, there was sort of, if you look at the, uh, if you look at America as a person, as a lifetime, uh, 
America at that time would have also been about the age of George Hearst. It was a mm-hmm. young man that was full of vitality, that was willing to to leave it all and to go follow their dreams. Uh, so you had a you had a great exodus of people uh, coming to California, and of course you had people from all over the world as well uh, racing to California. Uh, uh, Chileans, you had Mexicans that were already there. Uh, you had uh, Russians who had spent some time in California before. Uh, you had all sorts of uh, French, you had American Indians, you had free blacks, you had Yankees, you had Southerners. Uh, you know, like, as they said, the world rushed in. And everybody really wanted a piece of this pie. Now, what they eventually found uh, is that the wealth of California wasn't necessarily in the gold. The wealth of California was in this... Uh, beautiful and magnificent territory um but there was a there was a huge pull uh as george went out west they would stay like a night or so in a fort and they would find that the fort was half deserted you know like the soldiers themselves were fleeing to california uh william tecumseh sherman of uh, civil war fame uh was there uh, initially working for the army and flummoxed by uh just, you know, so many people pulling uh, wealth out of the ground. Uh, so it was a uh, it was a place that had never, no one had ever seen the likes of it before with uh, such a grand melting pot of people and with a common purpose to enrich themselves in this new way where uh, golden nuggets were just lying in stream beds. And, well, and- all one had to do is pick one up. Well, and, and you're you're uh, you're thinking along my lines because I I have here to follow on that that Richard Barnes Mason wrote no capital was required to obtain this gold. Um, can you teach us you know that early mining what was actually going on that you were just hinting at? Okay, so initially, uh, you know they found the gold on uh, Sutter's Fort, the South Fork of the American River, and. Sutter himself wasn't going to make a fortune because this actually disrupted his his plans. You know, like he couldn't uh, he couldn't control suddenly a rush of people pouring into his land. But for the average person, all you really needed was uh, a pan, and it could be just so much as a frying pan. And you know, you'd uh, you'd scoop it into a stream bread, and you'd rock it around, and eventually you'd be able to separate the uh, gold from the mud. Obviously, the uh, the gold would be more shiny and it would be heavier, and so the other stuff would float out and you'd be left with the gold. Um, a great movie that shows this is uh, the third chapter, so to speak, in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, um, mm-hmm. which incidentally was based on a Jack London story, which may have actually been based on George Hurst. So if you wanted to take a look at Hurst on film, and not watch uh, Deadwood or the uh, Deadwood movie. That would be a good one to do. Now, ultimately, the stream beds run dry of gold. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are like, okay. And, you know, this is very uh, new in what's going on. So they're not uh, experts on uh, geology. But they determine, all right, well, the gold must have washed down from the mountains. So then you're like, okay. So now they're looking for what are called dry diggings which are dry stream beds. And they can tell that because they can find smooth rocks. They're also looking for quartz veins. 
because uh, during uh, the collision of the tectonic plates, uh, lava would form and lava would catch uh, quartz and it would catch gold. And the gold would be encased within quartz. So if they can find quartz, which is uh, uh, shiny and white, they can smash it open and oftentimes they will find uh, gold within. And uh, George Hurst was actually nicknamed Quartz George in the early days of the gold rush because he was always looking for quartz. And by the time he actually got there in 1850, he found, to his horror, as a lot of people did, that the place was overcrowded. That he'd go into a stream and the stream would have been already worked over and there'd be dozens of people already there. Uh, he had better luck going into the mountains themselves. You mentioned um, from 1847, uh, San Francisco goes from about you know less than 300 people or less than 800 people prior to the gold rush to swells to over 20,000. Um, uh, George goes to a place that that you refer to in the book as Jackass Gulch, uh, explaining that the search uh, search searching to gold for gold was leading to nothing. Um, to your point, the starvation, he's dealing with poverty. This is kind of his early, you know, rough, I'm trying to make it in California. And then he heads up uh, eventually, um, you know, to Nevada City, California. Um, before, I think he was in, what was it, Diamond Springs area in comparison. Th these are all kind of bedroom communities to Sacramento today. Um, so he, they weren't in the creeks by then. They were starting to go into the mountains and what kind of techniques were used in the mountains in places like Nevada City? Uh, when he's in Nevada City, uh, he actually, um, he and his Missourian pals, they build a log cabin uh, out in the middle of uh, the forest there. And he's actually fairly pleased with it because you've got heron, you've got catfish, you've got the same sort of things in the streams around there that he had uh around St. Louis or Sullivan County. Um, he, you know, like you have stamp mills at this point to, uh, these will like crush the quartz and they're rather expensive. Uh, now what happens in 1851 is he's discovered, uh, you know, like a quartz vein and there's a nearby uh, mill and a fellow named Almerin B. Paul who came to the gold rush and had spent some time in St. Louis, uh, he finds uh, these Missourians and George is actually like, uh, he's down in the mine, uh, suspended in a windlass at that time. And they say, George, oh George, uh, there's someone here to talk with you. And he's like, well, pull me up. And you know, they sit down on a log outside the cabin, they have some dinner and Hearst actually like cleans up a little bit, which being that Hearst doesn't always clean up that sure. much, uh, indicates like, okay, he's taking this seriously. And they hammer out a deal, okay, like half the mill for half the mine. Uh, they join forces and they're able to make a, a, a good amount of money in this, uh, these early days in like 1851 until, and here's the issue with mining, the mine runs dry because ultimately every mine is going to. Sure. Uh, you know, like everybody at this time wanted to own a gold mine. It's still a phrase right now, you know, like that was the dream. But with every mine, eventually you're going to wake up one day and you're getting a lot less gold out than uh, you had the week before. And at that point, it's like, uh oh, how long will this last? 
So it finally doesn't. Finally, uh, it's all dried up. Uh, they tear down the mine and they find in the sluices a uh, glittering surprise. You know, I recall it being about $4,000 or $5,000, or at least that's what uh, Almer and B. Paul uh, recalled. And George and Paul decide, like, you know what, we're going to stay partners. So they go to Sacramento and they open up a, uh, a store selling... Uh, dry goods. And Leland Stanford, who will become governor and one of the big four, he's there as well. He's on the same street. Uh, Stanford does extremely well in marketing, and Hearst does not. Uh, this is, you know, he had his gold mine, he was on the up and up, and then wasn't able to make it in this field and had to go back out into the wild searching for gold once more, virtually broke. So, and I find this really interesting because in those two stories you just told, um, you know, when they put together the Merrimack, the Merrimack mine with the Skinner Mill, it was obvious to the people around George that he had a gift for mining. In other words, they, they knew he understood the rock, to your point about the quartz. Um, and at the same time, this highly successful, you know, looking into the future person couldn't sell retail goods to save their life. Um you know, I, do you do you look at this as just kind of the, the business risk of life, what you have to do to find yourself? How do you, because that's quite a dichotomy to have such success in something and utter failure in something that's, you know, really close by. Uh, a number of points. Uh, first, you know, it was indicative of the Gilded Age itself. And that's one of the things Mark Twain wrote about is that you could make a fortune and lose a fortune overnight. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also thinking of another... Uh, another fellow from St. Louis, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, mm -hmm. who, you know, before the Civil War, um, well, he had done really well at, uh, at West Point, uh, then got in trouble uh, for drinking and resigned from the army. And he finds himself in Missouri working for his father and proves himself to be a lackluster and terrible businessman. Mm -hmm. uh, he tries hard, but this is not his gift. This is not what he's good at. And, you know, people said about uh, uh, Grant back in West Point, you know, if there's any sort of crisis, Sam Grant will handle it. Uh, and it was sort of like Hearst as well. Well, his skill, his, you know, like everything he had was really for mining. Sure. Um, you know, like, yes, and we'll get to it later, like, you know, like ranching and... Uh, stocks and politics you know he'll prove himself in those fields as well but particularly in the early days putting george hurst in a uh, in a store when everyone around him is mining is sure. like having michael jordan play baseball you know it's yeah. like well he could make it you know he'll do fairly well but like wouldn't basketball be a better fit sure and and by the way to your point on uh u.s grant uh, ron chernow's book uh, it's probably the best book that I've read on on U.S. Grant. And di not dissimilar to George, he was pretty much a failure outside of St. Louis up until uh, the Civil War swept through and he built a small militia and took off. So so, so his takeoff point uh, for George, the takeoff point for George, um, you know, hadn't come yet. He's in Nevada City, California today. Um, you know, he, he, I heard said in your book, you quote him. So we went until 1850, 1856, sometimes making a little and sometimes losing. I never succeeded much in placer mining, end quote. 
He then heads to the Utah Territory, or what it was referred to as then was Utah Territory. We now call this Nevada, um, but really the, the hills above Reno um, is what we're talking about. What drew him to Virginia City? Okay, so he had always lamented that he hadn't got to California first. Uh, specifically what had happened when he was thinking about it uh, back in Franklin County is he visits a gal he was sweet on and he starts talking to the gal's father of, and this wasn't Phoebe incidentally, um, of the uh, the gold rush. And the guy pulls down a, a book and it's called Coast Range, if I remember right. And says like, hey, yeah, you know, like the Jesuits came through here and they got all the gold and there's there's nothing really there. And he always reflects back on that time because if he left early, he could have gotten there first and possibly made his fortune. So he's in Nevada City now. And Nevada City isn't very far from the border of what is now, now Nevada and was then Utah Territory. And people start coming in with bags of silver and they try to keep it to themselves but they go to the assayers and the results are startling it's mostly silver a little bit gold and it's like three thousand dollars worth of precious ore in these bags it happens a couple times and george starts looking around so everybody else does as well and a lot of people start uh you know getting on a horse getting a wagon together getting a bunch of pals and heading off and George himself, it's a very dramatic story because he relates it in his memoir, and he also tells a newspaper man about it years later, Arthur McEwen, who's a friend of hers and going to be one of William Randolph Hearst's right-hand man, Mm -hmm. right-hand men at the Examiner. And you get this dramatic story where Hearst gets about halfway there, he's on his horse, uh, and he's starting to think this is going to be a wild goose chase among the Indians as he calls it. And he's thinking, maybe I should just head back to Nevada City where there's safety at this point in time. It's 1859, and he's got another paying gold mine. Um, But he's like, you know what? I'm kind of lonely, and my buddies have gone on ahead. So after, like, just looking in the dust and, you know, switching around a stick for a while, he's like, okay, I'm just going to go and see my pals again. They eventually get to Virginia City, and... He's like, okay. Um, he finds a bunch of people at the Ophir mine, and I'll just give you a few names. Uh, Henry Comstock is one. The Comstock load will be named after him. Uh, there's a guy named whose nickname is Old Virginia, and that's how Virginia City got its name because Comstock and Old Virginia were arguing about which, uh, what the name should be. Virginia wanted it to be Comstock. Comstock wanted it to be Virginia. Uh, Old Virginia, like, falls down, breaks a bottle of liquor, and Comstock says, there, you've named it. Virginia it is, so it becomes Virginia City. Anyways, uh, Hearst is looking at these guys at the Ophir mine, and they're bringing up this ore that they're initially throwing away because they think it's worthless. And Hearst looks at it, and he talks with a buddy, and he's like, you know what, we actually think it's silver. And Hearst's like, okay, this could be it. This could be the moment that changes everything. And he gets a hold of his, uh, his old partner, Paul, uh, in uh, Nevada City and says, okay, you got to sell my share of the mine. I need the money now. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets the money. He's able to invest into one-sixth of the Ophir mine. And the Ophir mine proves to be one of the greatest silver mines 
in Virginia City. And the silver in Virginia City, as unimaginable as it was at the time, there's going to be more silver in this concentrated area than in all the gold in the gold rush. So mm-hmm. Hearst, for, he brags later that within six months, he became a millionaire uh, off the Comstock load. And it's true. He, uh, and then he does some, uh, some really spectacular business stuff. He's, uh, he's dangling some mining stock here. Uh, people are picking it up. He uses that money to invest in a greater silver mine. Uh, he builds or has built a two-story white bannistered house in Virginia City that's still there. Uh, it's the Mackey Museum now, but they got a photo of George Hurst on the piano. It's a really lovely tour. I've taken it. Uh, and it's really easy to imagine him smoking cigars and drinking brandy on the second store, overlooking his budding empire with his cronies. Uh, he's in his elements at that point, and he's made it. As you pointed out, he had this one six interest, but I mean, this is still very speculative. They don't know how this is going to play out. So he buys the one six, and you point out that he sells half of it for $10,000 versus a few hundred dollars I believe he had paid for that prior. So it was a very much kind of a get rich quick and get money out quickly. Cause to your point, the Comstock load ended up being multi hundred millions of dollars of silver, but they didn't know that, right? They just knew that they had found some silver. Um, and how big do you think this was to George's confidence? Because to your point, you know, in poverty and you know, poverty and, and failure, it kind of wreaked him ever since he'd left, um, St. Louis, or that the area there in Franklin County, what, what, what do you think this was to making George Hurst the man that we know him as now? Uh, it was huge. You know, like one of the things that had happened in the gold rush is that it was overwhelmingly male. Uh, and so George was seeking a wife because he was growing long in the tooth. He was 39 years old. He was unmarried. He was looking at uh, women in Virginia City, and so was Cousin Joe, and they weren't having any luck. Um, So it was a tremendous boost to uh, everything he uh, had accomplished and would accomplish. Now, also, to your point, they didn't know exactly what they had. So they had to take it not just to an assayer in Nevada City, which was very rural, uh, they had to take it to San Francisco. So uh, George and uh, some friends, they haul up 45 tons of this ore from the Ophir mine. Uh, they put some of it in a pack train of mules. And through the, uh, the deadly winter of 1859-1860, which uh, had you know, just tremendous snow, they, uh, they haul it through the mountains and they take it to San Francisco. And ultimately they make, if I recall right, uh, 39,000 on that. And so that's the beginning of everything. And at that point, George Hurst has become close to what we now envision as George Hurst. He's the he's the man on the make, and he's known as the mining genius. So he, you know he's into the money now in Virginia City. Um, like I mentioned, I think earlier, I visited Virginia City from reading your book. It's kind of a cute tourist town today. Um, you can still do like a wood style boardwalk along the main street there. Um, and there's a great museum there called The Way It Was, if I remember correctly, the name of the museum, you know, detailing the Comstock load. But this was a, I mean, this was a classic boomtown where I think during one of the videos I watched at the museum, um, they had a restaurant that would, um, 
that would rival Delmonico's in New York. Um, so this was a real town with real hotels uh, that would rival many big cities. Yeah, you probably saw the uh, Piper's Opera House as well, mm-hmm. uh, and that was uh, that was very big. You know, people would love to be there. Uh, Mark Twain uh, gets into the action in Virginia City, working for the Territorial Enterprise. Uh, lots of big names come from there, at least at the time. Uh, William Stewart uh, makes a fortune there. He'll become a United States senator. Yeah, there were. Uh, Billiards parlor parlors where people would lose thousands of dollars a night. Uh, there were cat houses where anyone who was hungering for the uh, company of women could spend some time. Uh, Virginia City was also right next to Gold Hill and Silver City, just to the south. And those were also big boom towns. You also had lots of crime. Uh, Mark Twain detailed that 1863 was really like the uh, heyday for Virginia City, and it also attracted a lot of uh, pickpockets, robbers, burglars, and criminals of all stripes. Uh, one of the great things about the gold rush, as Mark Twain noticed, is it did attract you know the strong young, young giants full of vitality, but it also attracted a lot of predators, and George Hearst had to be very careful that he didn't end up as a victim. So George heads back to St. Louis um, in 1861 after he's kind of finally hit, you know, gotten to the money. Um, and this brings gifts and curses with it. Uh, we're on the verge of the Civil War. Uh, Missouri was central to both causes. Can you teach our listeners why Missouri was an important state uh, in, in the Union, whether you were Lincoln or whether you were Jefferson Davis? Well, for one reason, you did have the ammunition stores. Um, in St. Louis, you had uh, you had actually uh, so much uh, weaponry. You had an arsenal that, if the Confederates did get their hands on it, they could conceivably launch an invasion. Uh, you also had the mines, which were producing, and it was a neutral state uh, or a neutral territory. So. Whether you're Lincoln or you're Davis, you really need this. Also, uh, the Anaconda Plan, uh, which was the brainchild of General Winfield Scott, originally had the idea of like what we could do is what the uh, Union could do is you could shut down the uh, the ports uh, around the Confederacy, and if you march the army through eastern Missouri, uh, you could come in, you could basically uh, strangle the, uh, the Confederacy and bring a, a quick end to the war. Uh, so Missourians at the time were looking at this, and the illustration in Harper's Weekly had this giant snake constricting the south, and the head of it was marching through St. Louis. So it was really a terrifying time. Um, ultimately, you're going to have uh, many more uh, people from Missouri signing up to fight with the Union uh, mm-hmm. than they would the Confederacy. Uh, George Hearst himself is going to claim neutrality. And this is really speaks to his practical mindset. Very much he did not want to get shot. And it doesn't appear that he really believed in the Southern cause, uh, but they weren't really asking him for his help in the uh, Northern cause either. Really, he... Uh, he came back to Virginia because his, or not Virginia, he came back to 
Missouri because his mother was sick. And he also kind of wanted to show off his wealth and possibly mm -hmm. attract a wife. Uh, so he is able to eventually attract the likes of Phoebe Apperson, who is a cousin's cousin to him. And she's all of 18 years old. He's about 40 years old. There's a big discrepancy in age. And her parents don't initially like this match. Uh, she's a school teacher. She's very cultured and intelligent. And it's also a very odd mix for uh, George Hurst, who's much more of a hard scrabble, horny handed frontiersman at this point, you know, with a sparse education. Uh, but she likes what he can bring to the table. And he's making no bones about his uh, fortune that he's amassed in the Wild West. And is also suggesting that he can take Phoebe not just out of Missouri, but out of the Civil War, which uh, for a large part is a war zone. Uh, so eventually they agree to the marriage, and he's going to contact an old teacher who will get him a pass through Union Lines mm -hmm. so that he and Phoebe can head to New York City and then sail uh, to the Isthmus of Panama, uh, travel through that, and eventually get back to San Francisco, which is worlds away from the Civil War and the horrors uh, that it brings. To your point about Winfield Scott, who was obviously the famous Union general, uh, when he got done with the Civil War, he became a minister. He ended up in Arizona, and hence why we know of Scottsdale, Arizona today, uh, coming from Winfield Scott. And um, the, other, the other thing that came to mind when I was you know, thinking about our discussion right now is you know, a 20-year age disparity, that, that's kind of par for the course uh, in Scottsdale, Arizona as well. So um, it's not as crazy as, as it sounds. So to your point, they get back to San Francisco. It's 1863. Phoebe gives birth to William Randolph Hearst, um, obviously his, his son and the, the, the media magnet that we know today. Um, but George's heart was really in Virginia City still, and this becomes kind of a common theme throughout the rest of the book. Um, uh, he runs into, as you mentioned earlier, Mark Twain, a.k.a. Samuel Clemens, who is writing for the local paper. Uh, why did these two folks hit it off so well and, 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 and become you know, what I would consider friends at the time? Oh, yeah, and that friendship is going to uh, bloom years later. Uh, both George and Mark Twain, obviously with Mark Twain, were comedians. Uh, you know, Twain would actually, you know, be called a lecturer at the time, and George never actually liked being on stage. But people said that he could tell a good anecdote, and he usually had a smile on his face, even when he was going through those times when money was hard. So George comes in contact with a couple of very interesting gentlemen, um, Lloyd Tevis and and James Ben Ali Hagen. Um, who were these men, and how were they important to George in becoming the Baron that that he ends up being? Well, it's a remarkable story because this is where George buys land in San Simeon, and this is ultimately going to be the same place where Hearst Castle will be built. So it's at the tail end of the Civil War, it's 1865, and George is looking for more prospects. And he comes across uh, these two fellows from Kentucky who have married uh, sisters, you know, so they are brothers-in-law. And it's uh, Lloyd Tevis and James B. Hagen. 
And Tevis is going to be one of the uh, greatest robber barons in California history. Uh, he's going to become president for a time of the uh, Southern Pacific Railroad. Uh, he's going to uh, become president of Wells Fargo. Um, his brother-in-law, Hagen, is going to invest a fortune in what everyone says is worthless swampland around Sacramento. And then he's going to irrigate it, and he's going to sell it for a greater fortune. And some people call them the California Triumvirate. It's Tevis at the top, Hagen in the middle, and bringing up the rear, oddly, is George Hurst. You know, even when he becomes like the, uh, the great mining baron, you know, he still can't touch Hagen and Tevis as far as their wealth. Um, but what they will do, especially when uh, Hearst ends up in hard times because he's going to lose a fortune after he uh, gets the money through the Virginia, Silver, Virginia City Silver, is they're going to grub state Hearst. They have heard this Hearst guy has a nose for gold, that he's one of the top guys who can determine what's in that mountain, and he'll make a fortune. So they're going to invest in Hearst, and initially it's not going to go well. Uh, Hearst is going to run all around Nevada trying to find more silver. It's not going to work. He's going to go into Idaho trying to form, find more silver. Um, sometimes there are successes. Oftentimes there are failures. At the same time, he has bought a greater house in San Francisco. He's sending Phoebe and W.R. Hearst uh, to Europe. Um, but personally, he's personally he's scrambling. Ultimately, he's going to find himself a hundred thousand dollars in debt to Hagen and Tevis, and he has to take out a small loan from someone in San Francisco, about five thousand dollars, because he can't go back to Hagen and Tevis, and he can't pay it back. And the guy ultimately goes to Hagen and Tevis and says, "Hey, Hearst took out five thousand dollars. He won't pay it back. Will you pay it back for him?" And they say, okay, well, we'll pay most of it back. But now that they know how dire things are with Hearst, they tell him, like, listen, we're not doing this forever. You know, you got one more chance. And Hearst is going to take that chance and go out into the Wild West, hopefully what he thinks, one last time. So you mentioned also that um, in your writing that uh, these guys also invested in Western Union Telegraph, obviously Western Union Today the Central Pacific Railroad and the Union Pacific Railroad. So there was not a business interest to your point that they were not involved in, in the West to a certain extent. Um, now George is doing all these, you know, these mining ventures, but these are stock corporations, right? There are shareholders, Tevis and Hagen are obviously involved um, with these. Um, how much of George's work at this time is true mining versus financing versus stock trading in this era? Well, He's no longer in the windlass going down into the mine. Uh, he is hiring people for that, um, but he is the guy who's overrunning the strategy. Uh, now, he also becomes part of what was called the Little Board. Um, Lucky Baldwin uh, was part of that, uh, Elias J. Baldwin. Um, you know, it was a new, uh, new stock board in San Francisco. And Hearst really thought... If he lost money in mining, he could remake that mining through stocks. And he saw mm -hmm. other people were doing it. And I would liken Hearst today as one of those fellows that gets in on it late and 
gets in over his head. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen that uh, in the fluctuations of the market recently. Um, and Hearst would uh, invest his fortune, which he has done many times, and this time he would lose, and he would lose at, at the turn of a wheel, essentially. Um, so he, he ended up spending more time at the stock market than in his other business prospects, mostly because they weren't doing so well, and he thought this was a quick way to uh, regain the fortune. And ultimately, he said, I dropped my wad at the stock market. And that's what uh, that's what got him in serious financial hot water in the early 70s. Well, and he also got involved with the diamond hoax. He was affiliated with that, though he didn't take the fall. So could you teach our listeners um, uh, what, what the diamond hoax was? Okay, this was one of the most famous stories in all the Wild West because uh, it involved some of the uh, some of the key players who were experts in their field, particularly Charles Tiffany of Tiffany Diamonds in New York, and Henry Janin, who, other than Hearst, was said to be one of the greatest mine appraisers in the country. What had happened is a couple Southern boys had come up to San Francisco and they found one of George Hearst's old partners, uh, William Lent and George D. Roberts. And, you know, this was at the uh, Bank of California, if I recall, uh, where they were working. And they came up and they said, okay, we've got uh, a sack of these uh, diamonds. We have discovered a diamond mine somewhere in the Wild West. They were very cagey. They wouldn't say where it was. And a lot of people got excited and you know they had to verify the diamonds were real so they went to Charles Tiffany in New York and Tiffany spreads them out on a billiards table has them assayed and says okay this is worth a lot of money and everyone starts licking their chops and they bring in as partners to the newly formed company uh, George McClellan the old uh, Union General, uh, another Mm -hmm. general is uh, General Dodge. General Butler gets involved. Uh, Butler, famous in the Civil War for uh, uh, kind of being the uh, military ruler of New Orleans uh, for the Union, you know, and saying that, uh, you know, women that disrespect the uh, Union General will be treated as women of the town. He never really quite shook that. Um, So everyone starts licking their chops and George is on the outside, and he desperately wants to find this diamond mine. Uh, so he has people searching all throughout the country. He's getting maps from Washington, D.C. He's trying to buddy up with his old friend, William M. Lent, who's part of this uh, new diamond venture. Uh, he's sending people out into the Wild West. Uh, and they eventually find the diamond mine. It's in... At the time, it was Colorado Territory. I believe it's Idaho Territory now. Uh, Henry Janin had gotten there uh, working for um, you know, the Bank of California. And if anyone floated George Hurst's name as like, well, he could be the mine appraiser, it wouldn't go far because George Hurst actually owed three or $4,000 to the Bank of California at this point. So George was working on the outside. Henry Janin gets there, and he, people start finding rubies and emeralds and diamonds, and he declares, okay, this is worth millions. And people start nodding their head. Everything is going their way. 
George has a company of people that get there a little later that they have like trailed uh, Janin and that party. And they start looking at these diamonds and they recognize, wait, wait a minute, there's a big problem here. Like not only does this mine produce diamonds, it produces cut diamonds. And people start recognizing them as like, wait, these are South African diamonds. Uh, the term was salted. Um, if you wanted to give people the false belief that your mine was worth something, you would salt it. You would put uh, gold there or silver there that didn't belong there and get people interested and juice up the price. Mm -hmm. So that's what these Southern boys had done. They'd uh, run a con on some of the biggest names in the industry. And George Hurst had gotten out of it unscathed. But now he's got this information. Uh, the cat's starting to come out of the bag and George's on a train back to San Francisco with a friend of his and they're being interviewed about this uh, diamond story and they try to keep it to themselves a little bit but ultimately it's too big a story and they kind of reveal like no uh, the diamonds aren't really you know diamonds from these mines you know someone here says they have a ruby on this train and you know George laughs and says it ain't no ruby and they get back and more than likely, because uh, Tagan and Hevis want to know everything to do with this, are able to give the information so that uh, they're not going to lose their shirt in uh, the stock market concerning these diamonds. They have the inside information. So George continues to branch out to new mining prospects all the time, like you mentioned. Um, he ends up in uh, the Wasatch Mountains, what we know as Park City today. Um, again, you were just tattooing these cities of the West that still, um, are well-trafficked. Um, then the panic of 1873 hits, the J cook company goes bankrupt. Um, bimetallism just kind of takes a backseat immediately because, um, you know, in, in a, in a panic gold becomes King again. Um, George was a silver guy. How tough was this for George? Oh, uh, this was a, this was very frightening for George, uh, particularly Phoebe. Um, you know, like, a he ends up having to sell his house, um, or rent it out, rather. Uh, Phoebe and William Randolph Hearst are in Europe when this whole breaks, and his he's now underwater financially. Um, at least he doesn't have to, like you know, you know, pay for the uh, pay for the upkeep of the house. When Phoebe and William Randolph Hearst get back, they have to bounce between a boarding house and living with Phoebe's parents have moved to Santa Clara, California. Mm -hmm. And one doesn't think of William Randolph Hearst, you know, having, you know, like a difficult upbringing, but during this time of their life, they didn't have very much money. You know, at one point Phoebe sends a letter and saying like, okay, well, I bought the carriage, I'm sorry. And George is like, you know, like, no, I told you to buy the carriage, you buy the carriage. It's put a strain on their marriage. Uh, everything is very difficult. Um, but he's able to, because he was, uh, he based himself during the Great Diamond Hunt in Salt Lake City, nearby is the Wasatch Mountains and Park City, and he goes prospecting a little bit. He's getting back to his roots. And someone has built a little bit of a mine in Ontario Canyon and tells Hearst, like, I'm thinking of selling out. And Hearst looks at it, and he waits a week, and... He's really interested in this mine. He thinks there's potential. Nobody else does. All of his friends goes back. And he ultimately buys the mine. There's a couple different prices people give uh, 
One says 25,000, another says 30,000. Uh, whatever the case, it turns out to be the Ontario mine, which turns out at that time to become the greatest silver mine in the country. Um, you know, gets together a, a mill, he hires some guys. Now it's gonna take a while to develop, especially something that big. So for a couple years, even though the potential of the Ontario is huge, and he's also purchased uh, neighboring mines to get them out of the way so that like no one could like happen to uh, dig their mine shaft into his mine, and now there's a lawsuit. Uh, it's going to take a couple years, but the thing is going to return Hearst to financial glory, uh, far greater than he ever had been. And now that he's got the Ontario mine going, now he's going to be financially untouchable. He's never going to go broke again. So again, to your point, uh, if there's mining to be done, George is going to be there. So he goes to Deadwood in 1877. Uh, the country's still reeling, really, from the panic of 1873. And I mean, I would argue a lot like today, Matthew, um, their liquidity has disappeared in the economy. And so back then, without a central bank like we have today, the way to create liquidity is find new gold on the gold standard. And so George is going there. Um, you point out in your book that the Earps, Wyatt and Morgan Earp, tried their luck there uh, at, you know, around that time too. Uh, Wild Bill Hickok uh, is killed in a card game there with aces and eights, also known as today as Dead Man's Hand. And Calamity Jane, to your point earlier, um, you know, is there mourning his death uh, I, this had to be a fascinating town. Oh yeah, I've uh, I've been there twice, and you know the rush for the uh, for the Black Hills Gold Rush, um, you know, it really began with uh, uh, Custer and the Seventh Cavalry determining that there was gold there. They were you know sent there on a exploratory mission, even though this was Indian territory uh, back in 1875. Now. In 1876, you know, the uh, Battle of the Little Bighorn will make it so that everyone suspects, all right, uh, now that uh, Custer has been killed and portions of the 7th Cavalry have been killed, um, the United States Army is going to send in people. Uh, you know, so there's going to be uh, an Indian war, and prospectors have already figured this out and they're flooding into Deadwood Gulch uh, even though they're legally there and everyone's kind of turning a blind eye to this in Washington because they need the gold uh, they need liquidity they're coming out of this depression you know the panic of 1873 and Hearst has been looking at this for a while lots of people assumed there was gold there there'd been rumors of gold for some time Hearst definitely wanted in, uh, but now that it had become a little bit safer uh, in 1877, he's going to go there himself. And yeah, it's a fascinating town. Uh, all sorts of legendary Westerners are there, uh, including George Hearst. And George Hearst is initially seen as an invader from California. Uh, very soon, he's going to attempt to purchase... Uh, the entire uh, gold belt. You know, he wants the like he wants the entire thing. Um, so he's purchasing the Homestake Mine, the Giant, the Deadwood Mine, uh, and he now has the capital to do it, um, his own capital, and with Hagen and Tevis involved. 
And, you know, pretty soon there's 40 civil lawsuits. Uh, there's struggles of, you know, like how to get water to these various places. And he's not well liked initially. Um, however, he's going to build railroads. Uh, he's going to create commerce. There's going to be more uh, stores and schoolhouses. More people will be there. And with George Hurst comes stabilization. It's kind of like a storm hitting. Initially, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, but ultimately, he is going to be the driving financial force that's going to help this town succeed. Well, and Deadwood was also a storm for George because you, you tell an interesting story of, to your point, the operators of the the of the um, homestake mine for him uh, get into quite a bit of trouble with a, a neighboring camp and put George in the middle of the lawsuit that, that could have really buried him personally. Oh, yeah. The murder trial is going to occur. So what had happened is uh, Samuel McMaster is a hearse guy based in Lead, uh, which is right next to Deadwood. Um, and McMaster is uh, in his office when the police come in and say that, okay, uh, we've got a, a cease and desist letter. Also, there are the owners of the Pride of the West Mine. And it's contentious because the Pride of the West Mine and the Homestake Mine are too close together. They're basically digging into the same shaft. And uh, McMaster has to deal with this. So McMaster goes down. He tries to bully his way open. You know, they've boarded up the, the shaft. He's trying to open it. Uh, some gunmen from the Pride of the West Mine stop him. McMaster goes back to lead. He rounds up his own gunmen, um, gets his own lawmen who are favorable to him to arrest some of the Pride of the West men. And now everybody shows up at the, uh, at the contentious shaft. And one of the Hearst men ends up shooting one of the Pride of the West men. And... Then the Hearst men are captured, some that day, some the next day, and there's four people who might have shot uh, poor Alex Frankenberg, who uh, ended up uh, his shot in the neck. He will be killed, or he dies the next day. Uh, and Hearst has to come to San from San Francisco to Deadwood to try to deal with this, and. and Nobody likes his techniques because it appears that he does what George Hearst often does when a trial is not going away. He bribes the jurors. Now, he did this in Peosh, Nevada as well, called the Great Mining Suit. And when uh, his men are found innocent, the judge doesn't like it, and he says that everyone who voted this way. Their names will be stricken from the official record. Uh, he says he'd rather have a jury of Piegan Indians than these guys. And everyone assumes that Hearst was the person who put up the money to get his way. And of course, uh, his guys, you know, one of whom did shoot Frankenberg, uh, the next day they all light out on the old uh, Custer Road and get out of town before any damage can be done to them. So George uh, then is involved with a mine, uh, you know, in, in uh, Tombstone, Arizona. He's also kind of looking at Sonora, Mexico, hopping trains to Boise City, Idaho. 
Um, but to go back to San Francisco, the, the San Francisco Evening Examiner, the paper that kind of followed the politics that he was interested in, um, started pushing him as the gubernatorial candidate. Um, can you just kind of briefly explain this gubernatorial campaign and, and how, it, how it ended for George? Yeah. So Hearst wanted to be governor. He wanted to play in the same sandbox as, say, uh, Leland Stanford, you know, always wanted to be the top dog. And even back in uh, Franklin County, Missouri, uh, you know, like he saw that his father was interested in politics and wanted to go along the same route. So Hearst is a Democrat and the guy who is Hearst's main rival is General Stoneman, uh, who was the highest ranking Union officer to actually be captured during the Civil War, captured by uh, General Joseph Wheeler, uh, as Stoneman was actually trying to liberate Chancellorsville. So Stoneman's a big name, so is Hearst, and Hearst has the Manhattan Democrats on his side. Stoneman has the Yosemite Democrats. They're more of the farmers. Hearst has more of the uh, the moneyed San Francisco uh, political side, the financial mm -hmm. guys. And it all comes down to speeches they make in San Jose, because this is where the uh, gubernatorial uh, delegates will meet and they will cast their votes. So it's not a popular vote uh, like it is nowadays. It is, you know, like you have representatives that will vote for these guys. So it doesn't matter if uh, George or stonemen are more popular throughout california it really you know matters like who can swing these uh, hundreds of people in san jose uh so george makes a opening speech and he falls on his face uh people don't really know him so well they kind of know of him and they're not expecting this somewhat high-pitched southern drawl and there's a bit of laughter now hearst has been wily however he's made a deal with uh, blind bus Buck, blind boss buckley who was kind of the uh the boss tweed of san francisco and buckley had a number of delegates on his side that were supposed to come out at the 11th hour for hearst but because Hearst opened with this bland speech, they come out very early, and then the cat's out of the bag. People have figured out that Buckley and Hearst have made this deal. Stoneman's speech uh, goes very well. He says, uh, you know, I say my record of the future was based on my record of the past, and he's using his generalship, mm -hmm. you know. And it goes two days of voting. You know, the first day... It, Hearst is still on top of barely. The second day, it suddenly all swings to Stoneman. Now, Hearst, as you were talking about the uh, newspaper, Hearst had bought the San Francisco Examiner in 1880. You know, this gubernatorial election happens in 1882. Hearst had bought the paper specifically to give him good press so that the examiner will write him up in a favorable way. He says, I had no idea of running a newspaper, or I had no more idea of running a newspaper than the man on the moon. He wasn't the right guy to do it. Uh, he'd hired people to do it for him. He wasn't like his son that was like dictating what to say. Mm -hmm. But 
the examiner, as soon as it's obvious like it's Stoneman, changes its tune and fully endorses Stoneman. And this proves to be a good political move for Hearst. Uh, later on, when the senator, the Republican senator in California dies, Miller, Stoneman gets to appoint the new senator. And because Hearst had nearly gotten there himself, uh, was popular throughout the country, had been very gracious in defeat, and they supported Stoneman, Stoneman wins the election and becomes governor. And when Miller dies, uh, United States Senator Miller, a Republican, Stoneman has the opportunity to pick his replacement and picks George Hurst. So I find this really interesting because obviously, you know, we have a presidential election and what followed it that's still being litigated and talked about and so on and so forth, um, you know, even right now. Um, you know, we had a president that didn't fail gracefully. And, um, you know, we've kind of seen the repercussions of that. But in your case, obviously, George just did what was good for the party, um, for the Democratic Party of California, and ended up rewarding him um, to not just be, to your point, a one-term senator, but in the end, a, a two-term senator and, and dying as a U.S. senator, um, which I find really incredible. In other words, by working inside the party platform, it actually caused George to be successful at politics, which to your point on his speeches on his own, he might never have got to. Um, so George is in Tombstone in 1881, right before the meeting of the Earps and Doc Holliday uh, at the OK Corral. Um, you know, after that takes place, he hires protection, heads off to New Mexico. I mean, where wasn't this guy going to go, Matthew, <laughs> to go find the ore that he loved? Oh, uh, he'll be everywhere. Even when he's senator, he starts uh, looking for... Uh coal in Virginia. You know, he goes then to look to Mexico. Um, he buys a ranch there in Mexico. Uh, and you point out just the size of this. Um, what, what Could you teach us a little bit about that ranch briefly and then what ended up with it? Okay, so this was the uh, Babacora Ranch. And Hearst at one point, because he's always trying to go into a new field, has deciding uh, he'll kind of reconnect with his roots. And he's going to uh, ultimately have herds of cattle and he creates a kind of a cattle barony between Santa Fe and uh, Sonora, Mexico where the Babacora Ranch is and the Babacora Ranch uh, is very primitive especially at first it didn't have any fencing and the cattle would uh, wander into a nearby ranch and into the mountains. It was causing all sorts of problems. So George decides to hire one of uh, William Randolph Hearst's friends from Harvard, uh, Jack Follinsby, to help manage it. And Follinsby goes down there, and he also sends William Randolph Hearst there on occasion. He's always trying to figure out what the boy can do other than newspapers, because all William Randolph Hearst wants to do, apparently, is have whirlwind romances, uh, spend his parents' money, and work the San Francisco Examiner. And George kind of thinks the Examiner is a quartz mill. He doesn't think it's going to pay. He thinks it's going to be very expensive. He never really wanted it to begin with. He just kind of like wanted his friends to help invest, and then his friends uh, went out. Anyways, uh, William Randolph Hearst and Jack Follinsby are there. Uh, and the problem is, 
uh, Geronimo has uh, broken out with his band, and they are, you know, according to the newspapers, uh, terrorizing Arizona territory and New Mexico territory and northern Mexico itself. And when Geronimo is captured in 1886, the price of the land is still low because Geronimo had the effect of depreciating it. So Hearst quickly recognizes this and buys up more lands adjacent to the Babacora so he can expand it to one million acres. And ultimately, it'll be worth a lot more. Um, now, after George dies in 1891, William Randolph Hearst, you know, this is going to be one of his like happiest possessions, but he will ultimately lose it uh, to Pancho Villa. Um, but that's another story. So, he, he, again, he's everywhere. Um, George Hearst was a jet setter before the jet was made in so many respects for the West. Um, how important were these railroads that he was running around on? Because, I mean, the ability to travel uh, via the railroad is something that had not been met to that point. Oh, they were extremely important, uh, especially in the Deadwood, you know, it was out in Dakota Territory, you know, to everyone's concept, pretty much the middle of nowhere. And so when George Hearst comes in after a couple of years, now there's a railroad being built to civilization because you got to get the ore there. But that makes it much easier for everyone to travel. Uh, the first uh, locomotive that was built in Deadwood was actually called George Hearst. So at that point, he was both man and machine. Um, wherever he went, civilized, wherever he went and was successful, civilization was soon to follow. So as he went somewhere, the American West would be knit together. Uh, the arteries were the railroads. It's what uh, connected everybody. And he had a huge effect. Now, his effect was incidental, but not insignificant. Uh, he was able to bring commerce with him. And though he primarily, you know, used the money to fatten his own coffers and uh, help his friends, it had an effect of uh, knitting the country together, especially a country that had been torn asunder during his lifetime. Yeah, in a lot of ways, um, it, it follows, you know, much of Adam Smith's original theory, which was self-interest uh, done by each individual could drive quite economics for the overall pie. Um, you know, I mean, Matthew, there's a lot we haven't covered. Um, just to note some of the parts of, the, of your book we haven't covered for the listeners. Um, you have great stories on the political workings, um, what, what George did in office as a U.S. senator, what he um, the jokes and some of his shortcomings there, his relationship with his wife and son, which we really haven't touched on, um, uh, uh, and also his relationship with Leland Stanford, um, again, one of the barons of that era and a namesake even today. Um, so knowing that we haven't touched on those, and I would highly recommend listeners to go buy this book and get in, the, get in your car, visit these places. Matthew does a great job of storytelling around these. Is there anything that we haven't covered in our discussion today that you think needs to be mentioned uh, in closing? Oh, we could go with the, probably the Casey at the Bat element. Uh, Ernest Thayer uh, was the author of Casey at the Bat, writes it in uh, 1888, first published in The Examiner, the uh, beloved baseball poem. And a lot of people know that, especially, uh, you know, as I was growing up, I was a literature major, you know, that was a very popular poem. 
Nobody knows that he wrote a play two years earlier for George Hurst. What had happened was uh, George Hurst was appointed to the U.S. Senate in 1886 and did such a dismal job uh, where his maiden speech on the Capitol building or in the Capitol building, people thought he was drunk at the time. A copy of his speech was found rife with misspellings. Uh, he didn't really know how to get along with his senatorial colleagues. He was kind of seen as this uh, odd Westerner who had like made his fortune, you know, the old fashioned way instead of the way we made it by inheriting it. Uh, and he wasn't really well liked. And of course, in California, the Republicans were doing everything they could to oust him and eventually did. They determined that him being appointed by Stoneman was unconstitutional. So Hearst is sent back packing to San Francisco, desperately wants back in. And when an earthquake strikes Charleston, South Carolina, Phoebe says, well, this will be a great way to rehab your issue or rehab your reputation. We will create a charity. We'll create a charity event where we'll find a playwright to create a play. And it will be our play. We'll have box seats. All the money will go to... Uh, South Carolina, but everyone will know this is a George Hurst production. And they hire Ernest there to write a comedic burlesque, uh, The Capture of Geronimo. And it's a big hit. Uh, everyone really enjoys it. The concept is that after Geronimo was captured, instead of being sent to a fort in Florida, he's sent to San Francisco. And uh, he's actually there in the play. Um, so everyone really enjoys it. Democrat or Republican, uh, even the antagonistic Republican newspapers to Hearst say that they've done a terrific job. And on the strength of this, along with some other uh, shady dealings, uh, there was insinuation of bribery. Uh, Hearst is elected on his own merit to the United States Senator and is able to return in style. But it's because of the author of Casey at the Bad, Ernest Thayer, that this is possible. Yeah, if there was a will for George Hurst, even in politics, uh, there was going to be a way. And whether it was bribing juries or bribing people, bribing politicians, uh, finding a better price than other people, he was he was always there. Um, Matt, your book is an incredible book of, of a life, a businessman, a financier, a, min a mineralogist, a politician, and and an American, um, as you noted earlier, he was not a perfect man and had plenty of faults, but yet at the same time, um, he, he, he really entwined, uh, intertwined the West as we know it. Um, I believe this is a book that also helps investors understand how money can be made when it's not being printed in Washington, D.C. or New York. Um, I really thank you for your time today, Matthew. Oh, thank you, Cole. It's great to be here. Um, for our listeners, um, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeedcap.com. That's podcast at smeedcap.com. You can also uh, find us on Twitter. Our handle uh, is at smeedcap to recommend us uh, any great book that you have. Thank you for joining us for A Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smeed Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. 
You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.